Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Atuan, and on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So cold start your broomsticks, watch out for ballistic farmhouses, and join us on our journey through Witches Abroad and the complete discography. So tonight we're talking about the 12th book in the Discworld series, Witches Abroad, published in, first in 1991, and it is dedicated to all those people, and why not, who, after the publication of Weird Sisters, deluged the author with their version of the words of the Hedgehog song, <laughs> Deary Deary Me. I forgot about that. The dedications are really so good. I actually really liked the uh, space intro on this one yeah i i have a note oh it's chaos theory time yeah and i guess this is is this the first uh reference to the quantum butterfly i think this is wow are we not Can't remember to the, they... because of quantum catchphrase yet no they have done that but the, okay. the footnote on page one is like finding that bloody butterfly whose flapping wings cause all these storms oh, yeah. we've been having lately and getting it to stop i feel like there's been another butterfly joke at some point probably it's it just would not have really caught my attention because it's such a well-used joke at this point and it takes a special kind of person to fight back and become the bicarbonate of history beautiful forgot about that bit that is just granny to a t isn't it it really is yeah i am aaron a very confused innkeeper in a town of no particular note I'm Anna, and I'm definitely not a cat transformed into a human. I don't know who told you that. That's definitely slander. I am Justin, who believes that, yes, I have seen this story before. I am Minna, and I live in the shadow of the Confection Castle rising out of the swamp. <sighs> you sort of do, though. Yeah, I guess if you don't know this about me, I live in Florida, listeners. <laughs> this, is, this is really, that was really a... That's a deep cut. Not really. Once upon a time, in the faraway land of Genua, the witch loath the Tempshire is turning the whole country into a giant fairy tale with her amplified power of mirror magic. Most of her plan involves a servant girl, Ella, marrying the Duke, Duck, maybe, I'm not sure, the puppet ruler of the country. Lilith is Ella's fairy godmother and is manipulating events so that she and the duke, or duck, or something, more on that later, are married on Samedi <sighs> Nuit More, the last night of the Mardi Gras festival, and we'll talk about that too. Uh, Ella, in fact, has two godmothers, an evil one and a good one, because that's what story logic requires. The good one is named Desiderata Hollow, who lives in the kingdom of Lenker, on the other side of the disc. Lanker, you may remember, is the home of our favorite trio of witches, the young and enthusiastically occult Magret Garlic, the earthy Nana Og, and the formidable Granny Weatherwax. Desiderata, among others, are sort of external members of the witch's coven, or I don't know if external is the right word, but they're sort of... It's the larger coven. It's a larger coven than we previously saw, yeah. It's the, the larger committee from which the subcommittee is formed. The most notable thing about Desiderata, other than her history as a world traveler and enthusiastic enjoyer of things, 
is the magic wand that confers her fairy godmother status. She is, at the beginning of the story, also dying. As is Discworld tradition, magic users know their deaths are impending. In her will, she leaves her magic wand to Magrat Garlic, with instructions to travel to Genua, stop the marriage Lilith is planning, and to absolutely not allow Weatherwax and Og to accompany her. Which is, of course, exactly how to get the two witches to venture outside of Lanker. Spite. And Greedo, the murderous and awful Tomcat, comes too. Then we get a surprisingly long rumination and travelogue by Terry on English people traveling abroad with the tactics of yelling loudly in your own language or using a mishmash pigeon of foreign sounding words used liberally by the homesick older women to the embarrassment of the youngest of the trio. Despite theoretically traveling by broom, the journey to Genua is eventful with the first stop uh, a sort of mashup of the Misty Mountains, the Lonely Mountain, and Moria where on a boat trip, a golem knockoff gets soundly clocked by an unimpressed granny. After a sudden fall and an equally sudden stop, they dry off and then cross the boundary into the dark and gloomy country of Überwald, where they end up in the novel Dracula, and Griebo eats Dracula uh, in that <laughs> form and accidentally frees the city of its tyranny. Then they travel along the View River in a giant riverboat where Nanny gambles away all the provisions and Granny uh, demonstrates her headology talent by card sharking the hell out of them um then they take a siesta in a spanish analog get thoroughly snozzled out in absinthe and accidentally ruin the annual running of the bulls by i guess scolding the bulls into a hasty retreat finally they find the road to genua it soon becomes clear that granny is holding critical information back while they find increasingly grisly evidence of other folk tales littering the woody road. They stumble across a sleeping beauty-style castle and break the spell, then beat a hasty retreat. Uh, there's some other things. Possibly the most horrific is the Little Red Riding Hood tableau, where a wolf has been filled with just enough human to follow the cycle over and over and over and over. The trio stop the cycle and provide the wolf with a merciful release from its suffering. Magrat, starting to get grasp of the situation asks what the purposes of the stories are. Practice, Granny cryptically answers. Lilith, watching their progress from her hall of mirrors, starts actively attacking them with stories. A ballistic farmhouse is no match for Nanny's willow-reinforced hat, and the dwarves, similarly slaved to the story as munchkins, are released via the judicious application of an older story, dwarven baking. They finally arrive in Genua, tensions high, and after an argument, they all go their separate ways. We're shown both sort of the Maoist-style re-education going on in the city for those who do not meet the candy floss nature demanded by Lilith, and the resistance, so as it could be described, in the form of the head cook, Miss Pleasant. She eventually meets up with Nanny Og, and together they meet Mrs. Gogol, who leads them to her home in the swamps. Mrs. Gogol is mentioned in Desiderata's notes as the voodoo woman who fights Lilith with swamp magic. Yes, we'll talk about the voodoo thing later, both its positives, maybe, and its negatives. She also lives with a zombie, Saturday, who does all her odd jobs. Mrs. Gogol knows as much as Granny, however, and Granny is forced to admit that Lilith is, in fact, her sister. Meanwhile, Magrat has found Ella in her home. She explains about Sebmidi Nui Mor and the Duke duck i'm not sure which and as nanny and granny arrive the girls minders two beautiful and deadly sisters attack magrat and ella or threaten them or something um granny realizes that the sisters are snakes given human form by lilith and is able to use their ability to be distracted against them granny cottons on to the fact that lilith is using the cinderella story to bring ella and the duke together and they set off to stop ella going to the ball that night magrat breaks into the palace 
uh, and destroys the dress Elle is supposed to wear. Meanwhile, Nanyang gets the coachman drunk. Then the two regroup, and Magrat uses her wand to turn the ceremonial coach into a pumpkin, and Granny tells the horses to get lost if they know what's good for them. Thinking their job done, they depart. Lilith, however, simply turns the pumpkin back into a coach and turns some mice into coachmen and horses, you know, because that's what happens in the story. The witches then fly on ahead, and in an action that we in the podcast will soon regret, turn Grebo into a human and send him to stop the coach. This he does by gleefully attacking the coachman. Then, Mrs. Gogol's huge and mysterious cockerel, Legba, arrives and guides Ella to the relative safety of the swamp. <clears throat> they realize that Lilith will come looking for her if Ella does not arrive at the ball, and so Granny disguises Magrat as Ella and, I guess, hypnotizes her or uses headology on her or something, allowing her natural nervousness to be subsumed by the iron will that Granny knows Magrat has inside her. The witches arrive at the ball, this is a very long summary, sorry, tailed by Grebo, who is allowed in, much to our chagrin. Uh, while Legrat goes to dance with the Duke, Granny Weatherwax and Annie Og go to explore and find the Duke's bedroom. Instead of a bed, however, there is a pond. The Duke is a frog, given human form. The Duke's morphic Surprisingly, field weakens. Surprisingly, because it seems like he should, in fact, be a duck. Yeah. He does have a pond. Uh, his morphic field weepen, weakens while he sleeps, uh, however, hence the need for the pond. Granny realizes that as soon as Magrat kisses him, the spell will be complete and he will be permanently human and Lilith will be free to be ruling in his name. Lilith will be free to rule in his name. The story is also the Frog Prince, apparently. Granny realizes the spell that she has cast on Magrat as part of the Cinderella story, will wear off when the clock strikes midnight, or more accurately, when the clock strikes 12, because clocks don't strike midnight. The witches race off to speed up the clock. In the swamps, meanwhile, Mrs. Gogol uses her magic to turn up Saturday's power. She, the zombie, and Ella then set off for the ball. Nanny Og, trailed by the disc's greatest lover, the dwarf Casananda, gets into the clock and speeds it up. The spell wears off, and Magrat flees in embarrassment, losing one of her glass slippers on the way. Granny finds a weak point in the story and is able to smash the glass slipper before it can be collected. It is not enough, however, as the Snake Sisters catch Magrat and the other slipper is taken. Lilith is about to begin the search for Ella to put the slipper on, you know, the foot that it fits on, when Eniog realizes that in real life, more than one person would fit into a size 5 narrow. Uh, by chance, sure, chance, it fits her perfectly. Angered that she cannot find Ella that way, Lilith has the witches thrown into the dungeons, locked inside an octo-octiron cell. But Cassinandison rescues them, with the help of, um, a zombie. The Snake Sisters attack them, but they are caught and killed by Grebo. Grebo then makes his way down to the kitchens where Mrs. Pleasant, the castle cook, gives him food. And there's a humorous little thing with a cat that is a human. Saturday arrives and challenges Lilith, uh, charged up by voodoo power. Hmm. Um, the power he has been given renders him practically invincible and Lilith's magic has little to no effect. She draws in all the power from the room, thus removing it from the Duke, who is turned back into a frog and squashed by Saturday. Grebo is also turned back into a cat, thank fuck. 
Lilith flees. It is revealed that Saturday, yes, Baron Samedi is the original ruler of Genoa and was killed by the Duke. Ella is his daughter and therefore the rightful heir to the throne anyway. Mrs. Gogol, Saturday's lover and mother of Ella, wants to put Saturday back on the throne, but as he is technically dead, this is seen as wrong. She disagrees and attacks Granny Weatherwax with her voodoo. Granny uses her more powerful, apparently, headology to defeat her, however, and soon returns to the swamp to make preparations for Ella's coronation. Saturday is finally claimed by death. The witches follow Lilith into her mirror room where she states that she will simply start the story again. Granny smashes one of the mirrors, thus breaking the balance. Lilith leaps towards the mirror and escapes inside it. In the Mirror Universe, Granny and Lilith are both individually confronted by endless reflections. Death tells each that they are both alive and dead, and they can only escape when they find the one version of themselves that is real. Lilith, who has invested too much of herself into reflections, is unable to choose and doomed to spend the rest of time trapped in the space between mirrors. The witches stay for the coronation, and at the end of Mardi Gras, they return home. However, they have all acquired a newfound taste for travel, and decide to take the long way home and see more of the disc. That was longer than I intended. These things, these things sometimes get away from you. So, for a thing that has a lot of moving parts, there are actually not that many major characters. We really follow more of a protagonist structure. And there's less moving parts than there are in in some of these. That um, there's really just one plot as opposed to the two or three that we've had recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or it's like one plot broken up briefly into like the party split three ways. I mean, the witches do at one point separate, but then they very sort of quickly join all back up and they're all following the same plot thread. Yeah. I love that there are clearly parts of this that if it was filmed would be like that split screen style. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anybody want to take Granny? Uh, anytime. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that came out weird. Granny <laughs> <laughs> would approve. Uh, Granny Weatherwax is the most crotchety old lady in existence. Uh, she's one of the kind of three main witches that we encounter in Lankra. She's one of the three main witches that we encounter in stories set in the Ramtops. Uh, and (laughs) she is just appalling and wonderful. Uh, she, she's very mean. Uh, very prudish. Uh, does not have a nice word for anybody. She's very clever and knows how stories go, and she's used that to her advantage in the past, and that does not stop in this book. And she's pretty much just, like, a being made of pure stubbornness, I think is how I would describe her. Too stubborn to die. Yeah, too stubborn to die, too stubborn to lose, just pure self-confidence. It's like she's the she's the epitome of like the old grandmother who survives on tea and spite. Yeah, or like you you've heard of like old man strength. It's like old woman willpower. Yeah. Everything everything else has been carved away by time and care and all that's left is iron. And uh, a yeah. sheer lack of abundance of fucks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, she, uh, yeah. No fucks, given or taken. That's Granny Weatherwax. Yep. And her best frenemy, Nanny Og, is um, slightly younger. She is the mother of the maiden mother crone triad. She is very down to earth. She uses single entents um, and 
thoroughly enjoys life where granny is almost ascetic nanny is sort of the opposite direction and they they butt heads on on things like that pretty frequently i don't know if i even say they butt heads so much as like granny yells about it and nanny's just like whatever (laughs) it's it's like arguing has just become the comfortable way that they interact yeah it's like arguing is their love language Mm-hmm. It's a constant low bicker. It's like if you know that they aren't bickering, if you see that they aren't bickering, then that's when you know that something's really wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then there's Magrat, um, Magrat Garlic, who's the youngest of the three, the quote unquote maiden, who is uh, described occasionally as a wet hen. She has a very clear image of what witchcraft and they call it should look like and it certainly doesn't look anything like how nanny or granny do it she's often kind of seen as being a little bit out of her depth but she ultimately does have a good head on her shoulders and she's she's good at thinking things through in a way that sometimes nanny and granny aren't and she she's very clever uh a notable thing that was nice in this book as opposed to the last time that we saw the three of these witches is there was much less time spent uh, describing Magrat's um, lack of boobs. However, there is at least one paragraph devoted to uh, Nanny's um, <laughs> Very ample. ample bosom. Yeah. Yes. I feel like I feel like at least Nanny would approve of that though. Oh yeah. That 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 that's a compliment for her. And then there's Lilith, the Tempshire. Uh Minna, you had a discovery about that, right? Lilith de Tempshire translates very literally in French to weather wax tomp seer. Oh. I think. Uh, Terry, why? It's like Laviolus all over again. Lilith mm-hmm. Tempskyer, a.k.a. Lily, Lily Weatherwax, is a TV Tropes user who um, <laughs> has gotten too invested <laughs> and um, <laughs> has gone from commentator to reimagining her various favorite series and just repeating the same story beats over and over again. She's sort of presented as what... Granny Weatherwax could have been if she acted on her Fowler impulses. Because I think that one thing that we definitely see repeated throughout the book is that Granny Weatherwax does not think the best of situations and is often very mean. She just doesn't act on it. And Lilith is a a a mirror, if you will, held up to a reality where that is a where where she does act on that. And then we have the genuines. I think I think most of the genuines are going to be Yeah. We kind of touched on them. Mrs. Pleasant, Mr. Mrs. Saturday, Gogol. uh Mrs. Gogol. Mm-hmm. That's the main ones. Oh, the 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 prince who's in charge right now. Prince? No. Uh the the, the duke. duke who's in charge right now. The fine the duck who's the in duck. charge right now. Honestly, you should have just named him Donald. <laughs> Oh no. But does he wear pants? 
Yes. Because he's human. Right. Appear is human most of the time. And that that's such a long gag, right? Like that that Terry's just setting us up to be like like with all the like you know, animals turned into humans, we're all like, it's duck. It's a duck. It's a duck. And you see the pond in the bedroom and you're like, it's a duck. Oh. And then he's a frog. I clocked him as a frog immediately. Like, I think the second that they started talking about him having weird eyes, I'm like, it's a frog prince. But also, I spent a long time immersed in fairy tale retellings, so this may just be my book. Many of the major characters in Genua are wrapped up in some of the things that we have issues with in this book, so we will get to them later. I think the main point to make is that some time ago, like 12 years ago, the old Baron died... His daughter was squirreled away somewhere, and now Genua is ruled by a duke, a duck, fine, who is, uh, weird. And also controlled by Lilith. Yeah, that's a good summary. So, the joke that Granny keeps trying to tell. Should we find the actual text? So, the joke is, this man went to an inn, and he saw the sign, and it said, We serve all kinds of sandwiches. And he says, get me an alligator sandwich, and I want it right away. Mm. Now, the joke is, the the way you're supposed to tell the joke is, and make it snappy. Because alligator, snap. She tells this joke incorrectly, like, four times. Yeah, this joke is told incorrectly, like, I I, I believe it is three times throughout the book. Um... And everybody's and, just like, Granny, yeah. no. And I, I did not get this until I looked up alligator sandwich joke. And just like, thank God AI rules everything around us because I was able to, like, this was going to, if, if, we, if I was not able to find this joke, it would have driven me to madness. There's, there's a, Something that Nanny says, like, after they've discussed, um, how, like, basically Granny has all these rules, but they don't apply to her. Uh, she says, that's witchcraft up at the sharp end. And I have no idea what the fuck that means. I feel like it's supposed to be a nice conclusion to that thought, but I don't know what the fuck that means. So, taking a, just googling that phrase, it looks to be a British, it looks to be a British term. That says, uh, so just, uh, you're involved in the most dangerous or difficult aspects of a business or type of work. Oh. Hmm. Okay. I guess that makes sense then. Anyway, <laughs> this was a language issue. I, I know I read this book at some point in my life because I'm, I am 100% certain that I read all about the Shepherd's Crown. I don't remember most of this book, and I don't remember the voodoo stuff at all. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> Rose-colored glasses, they're a hell of a thing. I thought I read it, like, you know, it came out when I was I'm doing some math here, nine. So, you know, I could have read it well before I had any concept of cultural appropriation as a as a problem. Um that's not an excuse, just an explanation. Ignoring that it's a really funny book. 
ignoring the chunk of it that's bad, it's a really funny book. There's really funny one-liners. There's really funny slow burn setups. Uh, I think that the travel scene is hilarious. I just wish that they'd done something other than voodoo. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is something to be said for the fact that we're reading this critically as opposed to when you read it before, you were probably just reading it for fun. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe, like, your brain didn't stop on that kind of thing, even if you did know, just because it was like... Or even things that you you read before you were aware of things. Like, there's so much that I read that has just some garbage in it. But I'm not talking about it on a podcast, so I don't have to think too hard about it. Uh, amen. I will not... I I say as I gesture at my bookshelf right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Uh, looking at the bookshelf right next to me, I've got Ender's Game right there, which mm-hmm. I have fond memories of and will never, ever, ever touch again. But I have fond memories of it, so I can't bear to get rid of it. I yeah, spent th- most I think, of my life obsessed with Harry Potter. So, you know. I think I think that a, there's... It's possible for a book to be enjoyable and for you to have fond memories of it without it being you know flawless because you know what book ever is flawless um certainly this has i think more flaws than the average um and i could definitely understand somebody who wasn't reading it for a podcast or um you know, somebody who wasn't white, say, completely bouncing off this book and saying, oh, good God, no. Um, and, like, it has the problem where it's both fantasy and comedy. And both of yeah. those genres kind of have a lot of that baked in at a certain to a certain extent. And I think as we go through the Discworld books overall, we've seen this a few times where... There's been something where Terry seems to have had some sort of like inkling that there was something there to discuss, but didn't have the full picture or like didn't understand that the way that he was approaching it was appropriative in of itself. Um, And I think that this likely falls into that. He definitely should have done more research. Yeah, I, I'm also really patchy in what I remembered from this. Um, I last read it, I think, at like 23 or 24, something along those lines. I don't really remember all the fairy tale bits and some of the... I remember some of the specific puns because I remember puns from these books. Um, and I also remembered a good portion of that travel montage um, including the the piece where Granny like annihilates the card sharks. Love that um, scene. <laughs> it's such a good scene. But I somehow managed to like purge all of the dodgy bits from my brain. You know, memory and rose tinted glasses are a hell of a thing. And I think, you know, not to make excuses for myself at twenty two to twenty four ish, but I was definitely at that point. That was 10 years ago, and I was a, definitely not as aware of cultural appropriation and the more subtler nuances of racism than I am now. 
So I'm not sure. It probably like pinged my spidey sense is like not fantastic, but I had a different read on it this time than last time. And there are good parts too. I mean, Terry yeah. is a white male author and this book thoroughly fails the reverse Bechdel test. Like they don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't even talk about the fool who my grad, I think is still dating at this point. They do mention him a couple of times. Oh, do you think they do explain yeah, why it, he's not fucking there? She, she's not dating him at this point. She's yeah, like, no, she uh, she's ass. like taking oh, a break right. to focus on herself. Because Margaret um, is They just great. call him Varence, not the fool, I think. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, as the person here who has not read this book before, overall, um, this is this is a, a fun thing of like, oh, let's take some characters who we already know and put them into some new interesting situations. Um, there's a lot of fun stuff in this book regarding the travelogue and characters at least characters who are being exposed to unusual situations and having very different reactions to them that is very good well, let me tell you i i'm i cannot go back and confirm this because i have no idea how i'd be able to do this but we're going to there are some problems with this book we will talk about those as we get to those points but overall, this was a fun book that is going to be marred by some very valid criticism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for me, this book has been almost like the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. Maybe not quite the lowest of lows, but, but some pretty... There was pyramids. Some pretty low lows and some very high highs because, oh my god, the fairy tale part is so much my bullshit. Uh, hello, fun fact about me, for a long time I read probably 50% fairy tale retellings in terms of my book thing, like, book consumption. Uh, so, very into this, into that part, and also we'll talk about the part that I'm not into. Also, I just, I just really love Granny Weatherwax. She grows more on me with every single book she's in. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it is constantly challenging for me going back to these earlier books, I think, because of my really firm concept of who he is in the back half of his catalog. And, you know, I yeah. see the parts that he's creeping towards, and I'm disappointed by the parts that he ditches later on. Yeah. And it's it's disappointing because it's like, you know, if he had done this book 10 years later, it would have been so much better because I don't think it would have the, like, Genua New Orleans pieces then. No, I'm pretty sure it's not represented that way in later books. Right. Like, that I think, I think, you know... If he had written this specific book later, I think that a lot of the things that are really problematic, he would have known better then. But of course, we can't go back in time and read his mind. Yeah, and like, part of the Genua thing, the like, confection castle uh, set in a landscape that it doesn't match, that shit works very well with like, the main thrust of the book. 
I don't really understand why the voodoo stuff had to be there. Like, it doesn't really have a, like, thematic... Like, it doesn't really tie in thematically. It's just... So, according to L-Space, um, this book derived from Terry making a trip from Walt Disney World to New Orleans. Yeah. Well, the Walt Disney World thing, though, it fits very well with what the book's about. The New Orleans part is just yeah. there. Yeah. The The Walt mm-hmm. Disney World portion is really, really fun. Is it just Disney World? I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it's Walt Disney World, uh, but nobody calls it that. <laughs> okay. Walt Disney World Resort, I think. My, my take on this is I think I would have liked this better if we maybe leaned into that even more during, like, the back half of the book. Like, the, that it was Disney World. Because I feel like when you're, tr- like, especially when he's trying to do both things at once of the the New Orleans and the Disney, it gets, it, it dilutes both. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the the idea of, like, okay, as somebody who... Uh, has some very odd experiences with Disneyland. The idea of it being just like this weird fascist police state that like people have to like <laughs> sneak around it and like sub- and like play to tropes while subverting it and doing stuff that would have been amazing. However, we don't get that a ton. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, yeah. if somebody had just given him a backstage tour to show him like the corridors and stuff, you know, he could have done that instead of voodoo had, had the local witch be like the person who knows like how to go behind the proscenium. I mean, even if it just had been Disney world versus Orlando, but the, the idea of the like a glittering fairy tale city, that's a like proto fascist state police state. Um, that's ultimately like supported by a lot of underpaid and poorly treated uh, workers is that's that's very real. You you didn't have to bring voodoo into it. You know, they they, they could have done a, a funny compare contrast with Lanker, you know, with like how the, the palace guard is like, you know, the same five people who just have free time that day. You could do a similar thing where, like, they say the same guard uh, who's also the shopkeeper, who's also the, you know, because they're playing different parts yeah. that day. That would have been funny. That would have been a good Disney bit. And it would have even beaten Shrek by, like, ten years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You want to talk about the the themes? Because I think th- I think this is, a, this is a book that has some themes. Good and bad. I defer to Justin, the literary person. I don't think I, I. I don't think I can qualify myself as the literary person. Uh, you wrote a book. You have been voted to be the I, literary I, I person. I wrote genre fiction and I wrote trash. Thank you. <laughs> That's still a. I I write academia, so you're still like okay. ahead of me on literary. I think that this book is a lot about you know playing into the power of stories and human's desire to fit things in a narrative. Lilith is to go ridiculously like 40,000 feet view up is great man. It's great man history. Yes. It is. I am going to boil down a lot of complex things into 
a girl found a prince and kissed the prince and prince and everything was good and we established this good happy kingdom and it cuts away people it cuts away agency and it makes there there's a point where um people who are not part of the story are described as the invisibles and yeah um this is something you see a lot with older uh views of history where a lot of where the work of poor people of women of social movements is erased in favor of prominent politicians or uh other figures uh, i'm so poor, glad uh, you know, poor people women uh women people of color this is this is a very um but yeah, it's a it's a it's a common thing we see in history, and it is something that, through no coincidence, applies to our stories. And uh, this is you know, Lilith wants to boil that all down to make her perfect world where she is in control and rules everything, and the and because life is messier than that, life in history is messier than that. This is you know, it shows that. This is rejecting that. It's a good analysis. See, I said I wasn't the... <laughs> I'm so glad that I was not the only one to think about great man theory here. I'm like, I'm not going to bring that up. And then you brought it up. <laughs> yeah, that's real good. <laughs> no, but this does tap into that a little bit. And it's great. And I like that that's... I do like that that is the perspective that Discworld takes. Is that, you know, great man theory is bullshit. You got to look at the people and... Yeah. Oh. Because I think I think like for the most part, I think when when Terry especially when he's showing care in his storytelling. Yeah. Uh never has a never has a character who is like completely one dimensional. Characters always have complex motivations. You they're they're always more complicated than how he first presents them. And I think that's one of his best qualities as a writer. I've read twelve books now of his. I, I think that's, I think that's one of the things I love about him the most, and it's a very nice rejection of that attempt to make people to make people into stock characters to fit everything into to stories that are neat and packed. Well, and, and actually, I mean, again and again, we've pinged his themes in these identity, right, and the people rebelling against like this fairy tale slash story slash destiny slash whatever narrative of who they should be. We saw it with Esk and Equal Rights. We saw it with Mort and Mort. We saw it a huge extent in moving pictures where like people really were being forced to literally act out stories. It's it's something that I think Terry really like pings on a lot is this thing that you know, people are more complex than what somebody has deemed to be their destiny. Yeah, I read this book while uh, my kids obsessively watched Hamilton about eight times. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, who lives, who dies, who tells your story has been rattling around in my head a little bit. But, you know, stories in this book are powerful and dangerous magic that control everyone including the ones who thinks they're in control yeah it's it's funny because that that 
quote and that that strain in Hamilton links very well with Justin's historical analysis portion is that these people are aware that they're part of something that's unfolding and they want to shape that the way that they the way they want to see it end. For me, I think the main theme for me is like the importance of like personal agency over that yeah, over over destiny, over people's idea of how your life should be. Uh that just it's so much a part of both this story and Granny Weatherwax's character, the way it's been fleshed out here. Oh, yeah. Just Granny in general. She just, like, whenever somebody expects her to, like, unless unless playing into something would benefit her. Well, yeah, she uses <laughs> She's both. always going to reject it. She, either, she yeah. either plays into expectations to take people by surprise and do what she wants to do, or she's like, Fuck this. Uh, I think, actually... She's just got the eagle eye on. Like, she knows exactly what's expected to her of her. Yeah. And I like, think that's... that's and Lilith summed it up that she she and Granny are the ones who are outside the stories. Because Lilith is the one who's making them happen. And Granny is the one who's fighting them. And I, I felt like one of the things that, you know, bouncing off of Lilith versus Granny, I think that one of the important things about this is the idea that people aren't who they seem sometimes and that even self-perception is often distorted, uh, perhaps not unlike a funhouse mirror instead of a regular mirror. Um, because there's a lot of musing on, like, between Lilith and Granny, who's the good one? Because... Like, Granny is the one who looks like a witch. She's wearing black. She's got the witch's hat. She's a crotchety old so-and-so. Um, Lilith, you know, is the, the pretty one wearing white with the fairy godmother wand. And it's distorting this perception of, like, who's the good one? And ultimately, I mean, I don't think that we can even say that Granny is the good one. I think Granny summed it up best. You don't know where people... She doesn't know where people stand as to whether they're good or evil. I think she, it just matters which way they're facing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think one thing I did want to touch on other themes was... Not just self-perception, but the way that the way people see you can shape your choices, even if you don't mean it to. Because, like, Granny is all about, like, fighting against, like, expectation and, like, other people's idea of what she should be. But also, she did get the idea in her head very young that she had to be the good one because Lilith was the wicked one. And, like, that's stuck with her her whole life. And maybe, and maybe shapes some of her perceptions of Nanny as well. Oh, for sure. Like, even if it wasn't, like, her perceptions of Nanny, like, I almost feel like she has to be, she has to define herself by pushing back against those things that she sees as being her sisters. Like, so she yeah. almost has to be, like, picket Nanny's, like, just all of, like, anytime Nanny, like, shows, like, sexuality or, like, wantonness, she has to, like, snap at her for it, just because that's what makes Granny Granny, is not being like that. Yeah, Granny's almost ascetic because yeah. of Lilith's excesses. Yeah, and it's almost like it, it does seem like she is happy that way. Well, 
Who can tell? Who can not, tell? Not happy. Happy is not the way to phrase that. That's how she is, and that's how she prefers it, but also she has to, like, show everyone she really is that way by being very loud about disapproving. In, and Nanny's gotten used to it and, like, pretty much disregards it because she's full of shit. There's, there's some resonances there with, like, for example, how you choose to be a woman in the world. Mm-hmm. And particularly maladaptive ways you can choose to be a woman in the world. It's, it's interesting because, you know, it ends up with, in some ways, Granny defining herself in terms of her relationships to other people, which she would never admit to. Ever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even she's not free of it. Like, she mm-hmm. yeah. she talks a big game, but she is not free of it. And that's, like, very clearly shown in her character. And I really I really appreciate that. This is the Granny Weatherwax fan club. Granny Hello, listeners. Great. You have entered the Granny Weatherwax fan club. Well, and I love that, like, her and Nanny Og are, like, such... Like, they're all the witches are such flawed characters. And say some really honestly sometimes horrendous shit to each other. <laughs> but, like, yeah. they're portrayed with love, and they very clearly also love each other. So it nets out to being, like, oh, yeah, these are just people. It's like that moment where Magda's like, I know, I know, I'm a wet hen. Yeah, it, it like, becomes a thing where it's not, it's not endorsed by the narrative. It's not even necessarily endorsed by the characters saying it. They just have to say it because that's who they are or that's how they define themselves. Yeah. And like, it's not, it wouldn't be great, but like, you're getting into the 12th Doctor, you know this vibe. You enjoy it <laughs> even though it's a bit, you, you, you would never put up with this in person, but you enjoy this. So like right out of the gate, we get an explicit acknowledgement of the Maiden Mother Crone thing. Yes, Maiden Mother and the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, I actually didn't get the first time, like, the bit about Granny realizing that she'd gotten the short straw, and then I went back, and I'm like, oh yeah, it's because she has to then, if if she's going to speak, she's gonna have to admit to being the crone. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Then there's an extended, also the, the extended take on the British tourist in Europe. Oh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. If I speak louder in my own language, they'll understand me. That's almost better than Nanny trying to speak the local lingo. My <laughs> God. <laughs> oh. Well, she's not even trying to speak the lingo- local lingo. She's just trying to speak foreign. Any foreign language. Yeah. Possibly three at once. Badly. Oh, uh, yeah. I just, I, I honestly do kind of appreciate, like, the number of ways that, like, Terry manages to make a recognizable, like, non-English phrase bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like 60% of this book is them traveling. Yeah. It's like, the, the traveling is like 50 to 60%. Um, and the... The magic wand that only seems to be able to do pumpkins is pretty good. That was great. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you knew exactly where it was going to pay off, but you were still satisfied that it finally paid off. And it, it's such an obvious Chekhov's gun in this one. Uh, Chekhov's pumpkin. Chekhov's wand. <laughs> the existence of good and bad people in fairy tales, I think, is a strong one. And also happy, the mm-hmm. happily ever after. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we get a lot of play with that. 
Thank, thank you for rephrasing that because the phrase happy ending has just like been ruined for me by years of well, and I the think internet. Many would approve. Happily ever after is the trope that this book is like, hmm, about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, like, we keep running into not just fairy tales, but like random classic novels. Like, we did spend a good, like, little chunk there just literally staying in the, in, the village by Dracula's castle. <laughs> Which, oh my god, I love. Like you knew, just because I, it's like... I haven't even read Dracula and I knew that's what was happening. I was yeah. just like, oh, we're getting... We, Justin can have a little vampire as a <laughs> treat. <laughs> yeah. And it's like so clearly that's what's happening. And then Grebo fucking eats the bat. It's like, Grebo had been bored. He didn't enjoy traveling. And now there was a little mousy thing flying around the room. He pounced. <laughs> it's one of the moments where Grebo's good in this. Chaos. Grebo oscillates, oscillates really quite a bit. Very strongly oscillates. Chaotic evil, I guess. Chaotic, chaotic. Yeah, just chaotic. Uh, so do we want do we want to talk about buttons? There's a lot of he, he swings for the fences with this one. There's a bunch of different things that he goes for. Uh, you know, the, should we should we go with the the broad collection of evil ones and good? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then slide down to the smaller ones. There is one that really stuck with me that I that I really liked. Um, which is that evil means being able to make choices. Um, and that, this is something that I believe that is very... Um, evil is intent, whether that is through actions or the implementation of systems. Um, and that is always done with intent. And yeah, I think that's... Uh, that That's something that, that hit me pretty well uh, coming from... August 2020, as a Californian who, for the third year or however many years in a row, Pacific Gas and Electric has burning is burning our state through their negligence. Well, also not providing you with electricity during your heat wave, right? Um, I, I've had two. I've two, I, I've had uh, three power outages in the last week. There's a there's a line that I thought would particularly. Uh, uh, sound with you, Justin. Money forges the chains which bind the laboring classes. I did like Magrat's like, like big like. I've been getting into philosophy. I've been getting into a bunch of philosophy at the start of this book. The fact that yeah. it was clearly uh, East Asian martial arts inspired was a lot. Well, and you you saw who was uh, um, sending out those. Uh, learn at home uh, martial arts pamphlets, right? Yes, uh, Master Dibbler. Yes. <laughs> However, she then is able to use that mar- those martial arts later on very effectively uh, yeah, because one of one of Magrat's powers is not knowing that she can't do things. Yeah, but she doesn't use martial arts. She just fucking socks someone out of like fear. Yeah, she just yeets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, that's not, it specifically says that's not martial arts, that's just fucking punching someone in the face. Yeah. I think Magrat is kind of like the hold all for, like, the somewhat cringy, new-agey woman 
who's kind of like very earnestly studying these things, but also it, mm, honey. I actually really enjoyed the fact that she's getting her books from like Master Dibbler because it really fit into the trope of like the new agey white woman who's like really into like the mystic arts as like from from Asia as filtered through white people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, and like the questionable sources. And fa- falling into it, like, kind of earnestly, but... We all know McGrath, don't we? I think we all know McGrath. We all do. I used to work at a used bookstore in downtown Mountain View. Oh, you know a lot of uh, McGraths. <laughs> um, and let me tell you, our New Age section had a lot of movement, and I knew a lot of McGraths. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've been the Magret a few times. He has a bit of a libertarian turn. At uh, one point, uh, describing Genua, uh, Genua had once controlled the river mouth and taxed its traffic in a way that couldn't be called piracy because it was done by the city government and therefore sound economics and perfectly all right. Well, except he's making fun of the libertarianism. I also took a semester-long class on piracy, and really, it's only piracy if the state says it's piracy is pretty mm-hmm. much what the definition of piracy stuff boils down to. So I thought it was quite funny. Yeah, I mean, yeah. letters of Mark, right? Yeah. The the difference between a pirate and a privateer. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, between Francis Drake and Sir Benjamin, or, and Benjamin Hornigold. Yeah, you can't make happiness. You can only make an ending. Yep, that's a good one. Yeah. On that note, mine was, we're the other kind of fairy godmother. We're the kind that gives people what they know they really need, not what they think they ought to want. Mm-hmm. Which I think just encapsulates yeah. so much, like, the perspective of this book, and specifically Granny, about, like, you can't just fit yourself into this box that you've been given. You gotta, we're gonna help you figure out what you actually need to be doing with your life. Oh, and one of one of my favorite lines in this which was i felt like an extremely doctor who line mm-hmm. um the good are innocent and create justice the bad are guilty which is why they invent mercy yeah another really good doctor who moment here was actually the like disconnect between like who people actually are and the stories that are told about them mm-hmm. um having literally just last night watched the one with the 12th doctor and robin hood where it's got this like musing on like the man versus the legend for both robin hood and the doctor himself and it's it's very good, and this whole discussion is just reminding me of that. And it makes me feel like it's a super, super a shame that Terry never wrote Doctor Who, because I feel like he would do a very good job. It's all I can think, between all the Discord and Doctor Who that we're doing lately, like, all I can think is how good he would be at writing Doctor Who. Because he's got that perfect, like, mixture of, like, comedy chops and like the ability to write like something serious and like tie them both together with a theme and like make big ideas into small ridiculous stories i feel like he would be exceedingly good at writing a 10th doctor 
Like, any, honestly, he'd be good. I could see him for Fourth Doctor also, I think. For sure. You know more about that section than I do. I don't know that That, much, that would but... be... That is, like, that is a confluence of, like, time periods that... I'm, I'm honestly surprised that he never wrote TV. Um... And I mean, Douglas Adams was writing uh, Doctor Who. Douglas Adams wrote one of Douglas Adams wrote one of my favorite. uh, Either wrote or edited one of my uh, favorite Fourth Doctor Pirate Planet. Yes. Yes. I need to rewatch that whole tying those circles together. Sorry. (laughs) The circle of life. I was just thinking they need to go back and rewatch that section because I really want to go back to Romana 1 even though I'm watching Romana 2 right now. Also, regarding places taken over by the tourist industry, also just capitalism in general, there were, it seemed to Nanny Og, two cities in Genua. There was the white one, all new houses and blue-roofed palaces, and around it and even under it was the old one. The new one might not like the presence of the old one, but it couldn't quite ever do without it. Someone, somewhere, has to do the cooking. Big Bay Area mood, huh, Justin? Um, and yeah. also really uh, New Orleans. Like, uh, you know, oh, sure. there's like, you know, the, the one time I went to Bourbon Street, I was like, I'm leaving now because this is just frat Disneyland. And it's interesting because I don't know how much you can even... Because New Orleans... I mean, its history is that it uh, was founded as, what, a French colony? Uh, yeah. So the people who were there were not necessarily the same people who are... But it's it's also a good Disney. It's also a good Disney reflection. There's definitely... Yeah, there's there's another, like, thing, route we could... There's, there's a seed of a thing about Disney here that goes so beautifully with the fairy tale stuff. And I think you could have expanded on that a little and maybe edged out the voodoo stuff. Yeah, it's weird that, like, that the, the, the Disney's Princess and the Frog was also set in New Orleans. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that is an interesting confluence. It's actually also, I think, valid to think about the fact that I think Disney had a different relationship to Orlando in 1991 than it does now. Mm. Somewhat. I went to Disney in the 90s. Yeah, but I think I think that Disney used to like treat its employees a mm. lot better than it does now. That's fair. That back in 91, I think that there was like less of a disconnect between like the poverty of the people working at Disney versus the opulence of Disney itself. Yeah, and I I can't on I on honestly I live like an hour and a half away from Orlando, but I cannot speak to like the dynamics of Orlando as a city because again, I've really only seen Orlando to go to theme parks. I know people who've lived there. I haven't. <laughs> That's a little harder to speak to, but I mean Disney is a concept just kind of bought up a shit ton of land and Orlando wasn't that big when it's when like Disney started I don't think yeah like, part of the reason that Orlando is so big is I think that but I might be wrong uh I'm very dimly recalling my Florida history classes meanwhile I am the one west of the Mississippi the one who has only known the wonderful Disneyland <laughs> yeah I mean never that's been. the only one I've ever been to never been yeah 
where Disneyland involves Los Angeles traffic. <laughs> e. Disney World involves um, Orlando traffic, which I don't know that it's... It's probably not worse, but it's not great either. What did we like about the book? Yeah. There's parts um, that are really funny. Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot about the stuff that we've really liked. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, this is a fun, it's a fun travel travel book. We get to see some fun stuff. They get to interact with some some uh, fun European cultural pastiches. Mm-hmm. It's a better travelogue than Two Flower and Rincewind, too. Mm-hmm. Better travelogue than Equal Rights, even. Yeah. Um, I think part of that is because that the comedic trio of Magrat, Granny, and Nanny is just like, I think that might be the best three, like the best character dynamic. Yes. That Terry has. Yeah. And like, I think you could, you could probably do an entire book of them. Like you could do a book with them doing anything really. And it would be funny. And they're the ones causing the chaos, not reacting to it as they travel. I also think that it helps that, A, there's, like, a compelling plot for this, for, like, the little travel episodes to tie into, which was not the case for Rincewind books, really. Like, yeah, they weren't, like, part of a, a overarching structure so much. Uh... And also, yeah, yeah, uh, the characters, I think, have much more interesting dynamics with each other than Rincewind and Two Flower, except for, like, Rincewind and Two Flower in, like, the big crises at the end. The the way that the fairy tales are tied together, yes. you know, not unlike the really pleasing conglomeration of Shakespeare in Weird Sisters, mm-hmm. I, it, it's really, it's really fun. It's really fun. And, like, it's not just, like, a zany grab bag. It's, like, there's a point of view and a purpose to all of it, which I think ties it all together really beautifully, which is nice. Yeah. Because, like, you can have, like, mishmashes of a bunch of fairy tales that are just, like, we're just gonna throw everything at the wall and have fun with it, which is valid, but I like that this does this. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I am all in on, like, fairy tale bullshit always because... Again, fairy tale retellings were my thing for a long time. Also, specifically within the trio, the thing I loved was just more Nanny and Granny. I love them. We'll come back to that, but I love them. The ultimate frenemies. F- favorite details from anybody? One of my favorites was uh, Nanny Og knew how to start spelling banana, but didn't know how you stopped. <laughs> that was such a good. Did it just add an N A uh. each time? <laughs> Pretty sure. Like that's how I that's how I type uh that that's how I spell banana and uh thank God for spell check because it eventually recognizes what I'm doing. I have here. a Gwen Stefani song for you. Um and then also probably one of my favorite food related puns ever. Um I used to come over here quite often to look at her books talking about Desiderata, uh Megrat confessed. And and she liked to cook foreign foods and no one else around here would eat it, so I'd come up to keep her company. Aha! Currying favor, snapped Granny. <laughs> I didn't even catch that. That's how bad that pun is. Oh. I love it. I usually consider myself a punisseur. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Oh! There's a funny line where they're looking at Genua, and Nanny Og says, 
even the gutters were scrubbed, scrubbed. Not a Ronald in sight. And the the, <laughs> uh, the, um, the footnote is, Ronald III of Lancra, believed to be an extremely unpleasant monarch, was remembered by posterity, only this an obscure bit of rhyming slang. Yeah. <laughs> What's a third rhyme with? Oh, I didn't get that. I just had a moment where, like, I totally skipped it's, over it's, the Ronald part, and I'm like, the big McDonald's in Orlando? <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite lines is this. It's it's almost like a Douglas Adams line too of the that mm-hmm. regarding Grebo the cat, which Grebo is such a such a mixture of deeply cursed and deeply blessed moments. <laughs> two two heads of the same coin. Uh, but it's this two, line of two heads. <laughs> shut up. Okay, Two Face. Shut up. <laughs> Uh, Grebo hung limply like a bag of water gripped around That's the middle. So good. <laughs> it's just if anybody is a cat person and has had to pick up a specific personality of cat, uh, there's just a perfect description of it because, like, you know, speaking of let's say say Oz of my like clouder of cats um it's like turning into a boneless muppet and trying to ooze out of the human's arms is this really specific cat thing of like (laughs) that that's such a good description of it holding a bag of water hanging limply it's it's so good also agree about eating the vampire there was also um, another one of my favorites was that I think it was Granny has a salve that prevents colds um, because it has a distressing smell that keeps everyone so far away that you can't catch anything from them. Uh, and I'm wondering if, you know, in in the year of our Lord 2020, we can perhaps harness that somehow, like defensive use of offensive garlic breath. I like that a lot. My note on the highlight is Terry does social distancing. There's there's some death. Death does not appear. He he appears at the end and the beginning of the book, but he has some really good moments where it's just like, ooh, that's a good death feel spiced in here. Um, at the ball, uh, death shows up. Everybody thinks he's in a mask and. The, the master of ceremonies, like, wants to enhance him, and he says, oh no, I'm here incognito. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a point um, where Nanny and Magrat are running running down a pair of stairs, and they are saying, oh yeah, what's that Clatchian? It's the Clatchiany, what's the weak point? And they're <laughs> running past death, yes. and, he, and, and he just says, the heel. It's sorting, and by the way. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, thanks. Oh, what a good mask. And then they both stop, recognize who it is, and just keep walking. <laughs> it's just like that record scratch moment. No, I think Magrat wants to run up the stairs after death. And then he's like, no, let's walk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's let's mosey. I have a series of yeah. quotes from Nanny and Granny. 
I apologize, <laughs> but I love them. <laughs> so I just, the nanny and granny dynamic here is just beautiful. Like, it's such a real dynamic. Like, I feel like I've had these for, like, I've had this dynamic almost in some ways. Anyway, I ain't going, said Granny, if you insist on singing that song. What song would that be? said Nanny innocently. You know the song to whom I am referring, said Granny icily. You always get drunk and let me down and sing it. Can't recall any song like that, Esme, said Nanny Og meekly. That one, said Granny, about the rodent that can't, that can't ever be persuaded to care about anything. <laughs> and then <laughs> later on. I'll refer the, the listeners to the, the uh, dedication that I, that I quoted earlier. Yeah, the, it's it's the the hedgehog never can be buggered at all. Uh, and then there's a later quote. All this for one prick, as if that was the end of the world. She, Granny, paused. Nanny Og was standing behind her. There was no possible way she could have detected her expression. Geetha? Yes, Esme, said Nanny Og innocently. I can feel you grinning. You can save the tuppenny haypenny psychology for them as wants it. <laughs> oh, those are those are some good lines. Also, I did not pronounce psycho- mispronounce psychology on accident. I did it on purpose because that's how the book spells it throughout. <laughs> Beautiful. Because they're they are bad at words. <laughs> The things that haven't aged well. So, anyone? Last chance. We're leaving the station here. We're leaving the. St- three, two, one. All right. What the fuck hasn't aged well? Mmm. Hi there. So, threaded throughout this book is just a grab bag of voodoo stereotypes and things that are alluding to uh, voodoo beliefs and practices. Uh, also, the only, I believe, black characters we've seen in Discworld so far. Yes. So, yeah. At least textually. Um, yeah, we've had characters described as, I want to say, I want to say that we have seen at least one use of the word swarthy at one point. Um, and like tan skin or whatever, but Mrs. Gogol is she is textually described as black. Mrs. Pleasant is the first black person that Nanny Og has met, I think. Mm-hmm. And there is even a footnote here um, that um, oh, that footnote. So let, let's 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 talk about this. Um, that the, the the verbatim racism was not a problem on the Discworld because what with trolls and dwarfs and so on, speciesism was more interesting. Black and white lived in perfect harmony and ganged up on green. So mm. this is it's perfectly fine to have fantasy settings where you say racism isn't a thing. That is perfectly fine, but to in the in the first time in twelve books where you textually describe a character is black, and then have that sentence end with that footnote, is just, I I recognize that we are coming at this from a critical lens in twenty twenty, but it is bad. 
You know, he should have known better in 1991. 1991 wasn't that long ago. It's a common problem for fantasy authors who don't want to deal with that real world stuff, but they still want to use that language and and those and those storytelling conceits. I mean, it's it's not unlike you know Dungeons and Dragons, you know, with with its pieces of fantasy or racism that have gone. I, I won't say that they've gone unanalyzed because they've been analyzed and pointed out by many people over the years, but they've gone unedited. Unaddressed in the text. Yeah. And that this kind of notion that if you offload your bigoted tropes onto the fantasy races, that's fine. <sighs> yeah, it's not great. That particular footnote, um, Amr dug that up. When they were when they were doing a Google dive, either during or after reading pyramids for kind of Terry Pratchett and racism, and Amr dug up that quote and was like, "So we've we've hit it, everyone. We've hit we've hit the quote. It's bad. So voodoo. All right." Um, Voodoo. Yeah, Minna, you have uh, you have done more. Re- you've done a decent amount of research. Yes. Um, so I just want to preface this with: we're all white here, um, and I don't have any direct experience or knowledge of voodoo as a religious practice. But uh, I'm gonna start with just a quote from Susan's. Gafidi, author of Who Owns Culture, Appropriation, and Authenticity in American Law, about what cultural appropriation is. Because I don't think we've actually, like, defined it in this podcast. We just kind of assume y'all are on here with us, and, like, maybe you are, and that's fine, but... So cultural appropriation is taking intellectual property, traditional knowledge, cultural expressions, or artifacts from someone else's culture without permission. This can include unauthorized use of another culture's dance, dress, music, language, folklore, cuisine traditional medicine, religious symbols, etc. It's most likely to be harmful when the source community is a minority group that has been oppressed or exploited in other ways, or when the object of appropriation is particularly sensitive, e.g. sacred objects. Uh, voodoo. We're all, we've all been exposed to it in pop culture at some point, but, like, if you're not aware, it is not just, like, a hokey fantasy and horror device, it's, like, real spiritual practices that people do practice now. Um, So specifically the version Terry is riffing off of uh, Louisiana voodoo. It came to the Americas with slaves who were taken from like West Africa. Anyway, uh, it was developed further by African communities under French colonial rule. Um, Terry isn't just drawing from like folkloric references here. He's taking inspiration from figures that are venerated by a culture to which he does not belong, and from practices often appropriated and distorted in American and probably British media. I think the one that stuck out to me almost the most, because I think we're all used to, like, voodoo doll bullshit. Like, it's not great, but we're used to it. There was a point where I realized, the second I realized that Mr. Saturday was the dead baron, I'm like, Oh, it's Baron Samdi, who is uh, yeah. a spirit who is venerated in, in voodoo practice. Uh, yeah, uh, turns out a lot of the names in this book are also spirits who are, yeah. Uh, hmm. 
Legba the rooster. Yeah, Legba. Um, uh, who who gets a deeply uncomfortable uh as as the rooster is a black rooster there is a deeply uncomfortable joke that probably the listeners can guess but i will not repeat it's bad yeah and i think uh mrs goggle uh her first name is the name of a family of spirits uh just a lot of stuff drawn from that like it's clear he like at least did some research and knew some of the stuff, but like don't use it this way, maybe. Terry is creating a fantasy world, and like some of the stuff he draws on is like sort of related to religion sometimes because that's like his culture. Uh, but I wouldn't draw from a religion you don't belong to and use those as fantasy figures because that's no, don't do that. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a difference between drawing on, like, European witch beliefs, even with, like, the fact that Wicca is a living spiritual practice, and this. Yeah. Yeah. Especially, especially since it's a, you know, living spiritual practice in a community that is marginalized and has been, you know part of that marginalization has been suppression of that exact spiritual practice. He tries and fails to remedy that later in the book where he, he sort of sets out that it's like not round world voodoo, but voodoo happens in lots of places. No, that makes it worse because he says anywhere yeah. you can just okay. throw a bunch of practices together is, and and then later he makes it even worse because then Mrs. Goggle goes from, like, a sort of ally to, like, oh, this is another possible villain because she is too powerful and using voodoo to overthrow and rule. And it's like, oh, cool. Uh, You know that voodoo was, like, somewhat more suppressed after the Haitian Revolution because of fear of black power and revolution, right? Yeah. Mm, just deeply not great. We kind of talked about this in text, but... He also folds voodoo under, like, witchcraft, like, as the same type of magic as witchcraft. Oh, yeah, which I think he uh, thought was making it better. No, it made but it worse. But it's just, it's just colonialist with this, because this, this notion of, like, well, everybody has the same beliefs and practices at their core is a, like very kind of white humanist thing that goes unexamined um because people don't have the same beliefs and practices and etc everywhere people are in fact different and they maybe don't come from the same things I kind of think of this as, like, the World of Darkness problem, because I've read a couple of the vampire books, and, like, those try and interpret every legend that they can and every history that they can through the lens of specifically European vampirism, and I'm like, maybe don't do that. Because, like, once you decide that this one way of viewing magic is how magic is, then you just distort every other myth to fit it, and that's not good. Yeah, that's a that's kind of a bigger problem than Terry Pratchett in fantasy. Specifically like urban fantasy gets into that a lot. I'll say I'll say briefly that like some of my favorite urban fantasy authors and urban fantasy esque fiction podcasts have actually explicitly stated when 
when readers slash listeners are like, but aren't you going to do, you know, Asian myths, etc.? They've actually said, like, no, that's not my place. I I think that that's 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 valid, but it's also we're we're digressing here. But urban fantasy is a very white genre that, frankly, does a lot of erasure. There are two solutions to that. The first is having more diverse voices in that, but the other one is that you know have doing more sensitive and more educated world building and storytelling. Um, which which applies here as well, I think, is that this is a problem that we keep coming into, and it, it's it's particularly egregious here because it's it is appropriating a world a real world religion. What are we changing? What do we want to change out of this book? Horny Grebo, go away. <laughs> yeah, I this is the this is the thing of like I like murder hobo Grebo. I yeah. don't like Horny Greedo. And, like, if, if Greedo if like, had... God, I just said Greedo, which we've all <laughs> said at some point, I'm pretty sure. Because we've all consumed way too much Star Wars content over the years. Um, but, yeah, the I really liked the pieces where Greedo was, like, doing non-horny cat things. Like, mm-hmm. when he's in the kitchen with Mrs. Pleasant and he's at the door and he's like, I want out. (laughs) And she's like, the door has a handle. (laughs) And he's like, but I don't understand because I'm a dumb cat. As a person who owns three cats and uh, has one who has some concept as to how door handles operate. This is something I identified with on a deep level. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of the a lot of the cat moments were really stuff that like spoke to me as a cat person. But then there's the like the horny bits. Why why couldn't why why can't Grebo have been fixed, please? Please. Oh, you mean neuter? Because if somebody had fixed Grebo, they would have stalked that person down and murdered them very slowly. Not if it was Granny. Oh, that's true. Is Grebo afraid of Granny? Uh, Grebo and Granny have been cordially hating each other for years. Right. But I do think that Granny could stand up to Grebo. Also, with Grebo, I really liked the ongoing bit of like him just intimidating anything that looks at him with his like series of like things that he can do just staring smiling and then when he does it as a human and it's worse yes (laughs) also his wolverine moment where he still has claws as a human yeah (laughs) was extremely good but also everything with horny Grebo Grebo and people being horny about Grebo uh uh no thank you Nanny Og is attracted mm. to Grebo All of those as a need human. to be erased. Now I'm just thinking, holy shit. So, so, so okay, we're, 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 I'm, I'm going to need to go on this. I need to know if Terry Pratchett was friends with Chris Claremont or Larry Hama. Because, so, uh, Wolverine, at around this time, a couple years earlier, got his first solo series. Um, and in that, 
he has a fake identity that he uses. That is... I'm just posting a link to a picture here. Which is this going is to come across great in an auditory medium. <laughs> yeah, no, no. We, we, Aaron put a link to the show notes of this. Um, this is... This is Wolverine's secret identity patch. For for the listeners at home, this is just Wolverine in a tuxedo with Amazing. an eye patch. <laughs> this is how I choose oh to Oh my god, yeah, because Rebo. he has an eye patch. Oh god, you're oh right. Oh my god. Yes. So, Terry Pratchett, Larry Hama, Chris Claremont, where was your writer's convention? So part of the thing is Terry Pratchett was a giant fucking nerd. Yeah. I know, and this is... This is, I think this might be a thing, because this was 1980. Yeah, this yeah. might be intentional. You might be on us up so in here. I have this, <laughs> if this is a thing, I I will commit necromancy <laughs> to ask Terry this, because this is, I think this is legitimately a reference. It may well be. Um, like, I know that Terry was a huge nerd. Um like there was some like, like there's a reason that there's like D and D jokes. I think I think there's a lot of problems with this that really are analogous to what we talked about with Amr in pyramids. And um, yeah, I definitely wish that we had somebody kind of more qualified than us to talk about some of the spe- like voodoo specific issues with this, and maybe we can get somebody to talk about them with us for, you know, something to go along with this episode. Um, but, you know, the, the, the aspects with that we talked about with Amr of, you know, the, the lack of self-reflection of using the tropes as they're portrayed in popular fiction without the deeper analysis of like, this isn't just a pop culture trope. This is something where there's real people here. Like we saw that with the, you know, stuff with Egypt um, in the, the cursed curse word, jelly baby. Um, and and all of all the stuff in in pyramids and we're we're seeing that again here that you know it's it's the thing of like you know i think terry probably thought of voodoo as like the pop culture representation of it but didn't didn't realize that it's something to do with real humans, like now, and not at some amorphous time in the past, etc. Uh, weirdly, I felt like this was, in some ways, more. And I, again, I'm coming at this from somebody who's white and may not know what I'm talking about. Um, but I felt like this was less disrespectful, perhaps, than some of the 
references to voodoo I've seen in other things that are, say, urban fantasy, etc., which have been a lot more, like, at least obviously offensive, where, like, even reading those at the same time that I was reading this, I, I... read them was like oh that's uh that's bad i think what it is is you're using another cult you're using another culture's religion for comedy as well yeah and i think that leaves a particularly bad taste in my mouth yeah like that 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 it doesn't have the evil portrayal that i've seen with urban fantasy especially older urban fantasy and voodoo but we even we do but get we get that we get that in the end of the book where yeah yeah and, and Mrs. Gogol and Granny have yeah. their face off it's and even before then yeah. literally uh, is like it's my happy endings or her dark chaos and then after that Mrs. Gogol turns out to be uh, somewhat of an antagonist briefly and it's like oh if we could not have reinforced that. Because Lilith is clearly yeah. wrong. I mean, Lilith's always, like, every way she characterizes things is wrong. But I wish that the narrative hadn't backed her up a little bit. Yeah. So what are the most interesting references to other pieces of Discworld? God, there's so much witchery stuff in here that they're, he's going to continue exploring and developing, and it's going to be great. Which is a broad thing. Like, he then goes and, you know, this is maybe a bit of a spoiler, but he then goes and meditates on, like where the power for witches actually comes from in later books, which I find interesting. I loved Casananda. I think I think he's been referenced before, but this is his first actual uh, on-screen appearance. Casananda is absolutely wonderful. He is a Casananda is, yeah, is the disc's second greatest lover. But he tries harder. Yes, he's a, and he's a dwarf. And he also knows where the nearest stepladder is at all times, apparently. He's also very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Very much in favor of open relationships. Nine out of ten. Blood, blood day. Uh, and Jason might be a himbo male witch. Like, is he a smith? He is a smith. Yeah, yeah I think he's, he's a smith. A black I, think, yeah. I think that's what a smith is. Right. <laughs> because, like, you know, there, there's that scene at the beginning. He's He's portrayed as gigantic and not like not super the smartest yeah but like the way he's able to control even the most dangerous horses is basically like he tells them in his in their ear you know do what i tell you let me put a shoe on you or i will turn you into uh what's the word for a castrated horse the gelding gelding yeah or i will geld you (laughs) Uh, yeah. Which seems like a very witch it's a thing, like very you know, witch thing. But it's also a very Smith thing. I don't. I might be talking bullshit, but like because they work with metal, and because metal is, tends to be a, especially cold iron tends to be a traditional like thing to ward off fairies. Like I think Smiths, at least in some like hmm. folklore based fantasy I've read, have been like pretty much yeah the male equivalent to witches, where it's like they they can see through magic and deal with that shit and see the world as it really is, which is how mat- how witches work. Oh, uh, this is our first appearance of dwarf bread, which will come back again and again, and I love it. 
that it's 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 like it's like the reverse lemon yes, thread. Merely looking at it can sustain you for weeks because you will eat anything else. <laughs> Literally anything else. I really like the continued riff on like magic versus the gods. Um, there's that line that that witches know that the gods exist, of course. They even deal with them occasionally, but they don't believe in them. They know them too well. It would be like believing in the postman. We've also we've also emerged from the dark times of every line regarding Magret being like, she has no titties. Instead, just an occasional genial appreciation of of uh, Nanny Og's healthy body. Yes, her healthy body that has served her well over the years. Yeah, I have to say, I actually genuinely really appreciate the way that she was treated in this book, because none of it felt like male gazy. It just felt like, oh, she has a very a body that she has and is comfortable with. And I was like, yes, thank you. Speaking of her, um. The early in the book, the description of the Og clan. Oh my god, yes. Where there's like all of those just constant infighting with Nanny just sort of encouraging all oh of it going god. on all the time. But then anytime anybody mm-hmm. outside the clan threatens it, it's just like knives out. <laughs> I grew up in an in a rural area where that's very true. In the town that I grew up in, there are two to three clans like that. They behave in exactly that way. It's hilarious, like, how how on the nose Yeah, I was. absolutely believe that that's probably observational humor there. <laughs> Favorite reference for me? Come, Githa, can keep on being a line that happens from Granny Og because it makes me happy every time. <laughs> it's so silly and I don't think i don't know i don't think it's supposed to be like the line that i would place on my fucking like forum signature banner but sure is oh uh there was yet one third thing that gave me a strong doctor who vibe continuing that discussion so there's that footnote on urban myths that i also felt was very doctor who there was this commentary in how the things and stories keep happening everywhere across time and space, and that the stories themselves are in some way alive, and that just felt very Doctor to it's me. It's very Doctor Who. It's a thing that I wish both Doctor Who and Terry Pratchett would stop doing with things that are clearly not universal. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I'm trying to remember the context. Well, at least that footnote... At least that footnote was really talking about things that I think are more Yeah, I think it's universal. more that there was something that elsewhere maybe also in a footnote that was said to like happen in all worlds and I'm like this doesn't even happen in my culture. That was the that was voodoo happens in all worlds. No, 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 or no, no not like even that, that right? one. Um No. God, let me find it. Sorry, hold on. Oh, at any one time, hundreds of dead grandmothers are being whisked away on the roof racks of stolen cars, and loyal Alsatians are choking on the fingers of midnight burglars. What? This is not even an urban myth we have. (laughs) Maybe it's a British thing. Yeah, no, exactly. But they're, like, suggesting that it happens in all worlds. That doesn't prove his point. Like, somebody in, like, a, yeah. He could have... Someone on Mercury has this story. (laughs) 
But but it's something that Doctor Who does also. Like, the concept that Satan exists in every culture, and it's like, but he doesn't. (laughs) Even on Earth, he doesn't. But Doctor Who does that repeatedly, and Terry Pratchett does that repeatedly, and it's just kind of baked in. It's very Doctor Who, but it's not great Doctor Who for me. Yeah. (laughs) So, the wolf story still creeps me out. It's real. Like, that was was horrible. Fucking horrifying. Horrifying and very good, frankly. Like, yeah. We're, we're, you see Esme's weird brand of kindness really come out there. Where she does the thing that has to be done because it has to be done and it's the best. It's what they need. Mm-hmm. Even if it's really tough. I felt like that was really one of the strongest pieces yeah. of the book, honestly, was that, that dark note that wasn't dark because we were really unhappy about the content, but because it's the throwing something truly horrific in there. And it also telegraphed just how horrible uh, Lilith mm-hmm. was because she just sort of disposed of it and didn't even oh. like just left it and didn't even like dispose. And of then it. Granny makes sure that it gets a proper burial. And, and I think it really mm-hmm. highlights here the difference between like being nice and compassion which I think is really key mm-hmm. to Granny's character. It's like the difference between nice and being good. Nice is different than good. <laughs> to reference another fairy tale pastiche. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. All right. Shipping corner? Yes! Anna and I are on the same page here. I will I will take a backseat for this one. I love them more with every book they're in together. Please leave me alone. I might actually write fan fiction. <laughs> they're just uh, Well, you know we're gonna have to tweet it out on the official account. Well, I, I did do that. I did tweet out a bit that snippet that I wrote today, so you can retweet it if you want. Uh <laughs> Uh, they're just, it's like, I know, they're, like, very clearly not, like, romantically or sexually involved, but they're together in my head. And I think it's, like, literally, like, Nan- Granny refuses to put any kind of a name on it, and Nanny's just like... It's this, it's that, like, familiarity and camaraderie born out of this long, long friendship. Yeah. And... They're just, and they're it's each just, other's it's like people. that they're so comfortable. Yeah. And like, they don't even need like words for it because I mean, you know, Granny is never going to use the right words for it, but they know. And, and Nanny's going to use way too many words yeah, for it. Yeah. Yeah. Just, they're uh, so. Very specific words. They're so funny. Yes. And okay. Literally very early on in the book, there's like a, a passing line where like Nanny Og put a hand on her partner's elbow or something. And it's talking about Granny. I'm like, yep. Mm-hmm. Nanny Granny Queer Blue High Partnership 2K20. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and and Nanny is just sort of casually horned the entire time. And I love that about her. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's great. Yeah. And especially like, you know, as an as an old lady, it's it's a nice piece of her defying yeah. societal expectations too. Mm-hmm. Because like as an old lady, I'm sure that she's like everybody expects her to be no longer interested in such things and yet she's like 
consistently very thirsty. Yeah. There's that section early on where they're talking about McGrath trying to, in capital letters, find herself. Um, And uh, Granny is described as thinking that female emancipation was a woman's complaint that shouldn't be discussed in front of men. (laughs) Nanny Og was more sympathetic, but had a tendency to come out with what McGrath thought of as double intenders, although in Nanny Og's case, they were generally single entente and proud of it. Love. Yep. And I just, I think there's also kind of a fun moment at the ball. I mean, a fun moment at the ball where, like, they're like, Lady Weatherwax, Dame Og, that was adorable. But there's there's kind of an interesting yeah. moment with them at the ball where, like, Granny's, like, more, seems to be, like, maybe more grumpy than usual about Nanny's stuff. And, like, she's, like, acting like a hussy and Nanny's, like, no, not really. Like, it seems like, it's, like, a mo- weird moment of disconnect for them where, like, it seems like Nanny or Granny is making a bigger deal out of it than she usually would, and Nanny is about to call her on it. I'm like, huh? You kind of you can kind of see like where she gets more anxious about who she is as a part. Not anxious, but she she's getting more uncomfortable in general and lashing out, and that's uh, disrupting the usual flow. And it's like kind of an interesting character moment to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a good callback to to that moment in Weird Sisters where Granny, you know, Granny has that thing of like where she basically calls Nanny, you know, easy. Well, and it always seems <laughs> and, to be like the worst. And Nanny of is it. like, well, you're a prude, and they instantly regret it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it seems like the worst moments of it are like when they're having like a deeper issue that they're expressing through that, and like. It's not great, but you can see why it would happen if that makes sense. Yeah. It's like they have a they have a normal level that's a normal that's like a baseline insulting each other. And when you get above that it's like, ooh, maybe don't. Yeah, it's like it's like that thing where, you know, where you have a friendship where there's comfortable ribbing. And it's comfortable until it's not. Yeah. Like when there's something that actually like digs mm. too deep or like hits too hard, it's like Mm. And I, I kind of appreciate that he shows that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it makes the like the relationship between them feel very real. Yeah. Also, they're just incredibly good. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have been through my feelings. And we will stay tuned, everyone, to God. everyone's feelings about Esme and Gaitha in... Uh, what's the next one? Uh, Carpe Jugulum? Lords and Ladies, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. I didn't remember the order. Also, it's going it's going to keep happening that I will not ever settle on a way to pronounce their names because the audiobook pronounces it Esme and Githa, and neither of those are the ways that my mouth wants to pronounce it otherwise. Everything with these books gets filtered through, like my redneck town upbringing. <laughs> so I'm like, Lanker and Gaitha. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry for subjecting you all to my native accent. I It's like usually filtered through audiobook unless I haven't listened to the audiobook very much. Then it's like, oh, that's not how I pronounced it. And also now I can't remember how I should pronounce it because there's two. So from me, of the parts that aren't just a big old problem. Five and maybe just one more out of eight rum daiquiris. 
So for me, overall, I'd give it three out of five nas in a banana na na na. A lot of singing in this one. Um, I will give it five out of eight woodsmen ready to put a wolf out of his misery. Mm. I will give it four out of seven years of bad luck. That's it's it's the four in the middle of the two mirrors that are showing the extremes. In this time, I I have I have opened up a internet book retailer. Um, I have looked. They shall go unnamed. Um, so. Small Gods, a Discworld novel, book 13 out of 41. Lost in the chill deeps of space between the galaxies, it sails on forever. A flat, circular world carried on the back of a giant turtle. Discworld, a land where the unexpected can be expected. Where the strangest things happen to the nicest people. Like Brutha, a simple lad who only wants to tend his melon patch. Until one day, he hears the voice of a god calling his name. A small god, to be sure, but bossy as hell. So, I know this one is one that I've heard people talk about a lot. It's a philosophy book, as far as I have heard. I haven't read it. And I think this this is going to be interesting, because this is another one of the the category of books I have fond memories about, but trepidations also. <laughs> so we'll see. Hey, we will see. Also, before we stop recording, really quick, uh, I just wanted to, for once in my life, give Nigel Planer props because I don't do that on this podcast. I mostly complain when he does the voice, and I wish he wouldn't. He's he does some damn good voices also, like. There's the bit with the card sharks. Uh, I listened to that on audio, and like every time that they were saying ha ha ha, he was doing this wonderful like sinister slash dim-witted sniggering, and it like really just was perfect. I just thought for once I would give him credit. <laughs> nice. Excellent. I just read on Dead Tree forever and ever. I've switched to ebook because I was getting them as like used trade paperbacks um, because I like the ability to like dog ear the book because I'm an asshole and deserve to be burned at the stake Um, but uh, in, in these current times it is very difficult to get used books I just know that there is Nigel Planer Stephen Briggs narrator discourse and I don't have a place that I stand in it but I I just don't want to you Nigel Planer fans out there I guess you're valid (laughs) 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 is what I'm trying to say the only discourse we enter into is the discourse that we bring to the table damn it Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music from this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. That info can be found in the show notes.
The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show at Pod, which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. Thank you.